All right, the uh, text for today is, unsurprisingly, 1 Timothy 6, uh, we'll do 1 through 10. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you should teach and insist on if anyone teaches otherwise uh, and does not agree to sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. They are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We are brought with nothing, we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So uh, we're just about two-thirds of the way through the pastoral letters. And... uh, I don't know, uh, I guess in a way they continue to surprise, and uh, I'm sure you all will not be shocked to hear that unsurprisingly, I think they continue to be weirdly translated in ways that make it hard for us to see the point that they're driving at. So we've been talking for a few weeks now about, uh, I don't know, you've heard me say it a million times, people read these letters as a series of rules or regulations or guidelines for church administration, maybe for the qualifications of of people who should lead in the church, I think certainly more broadly for what it means as a Christian to think about how you uh, relate to and uh, how each one of us is charged with, I don't know, leading for the sake of advancing the kingdom. But the point, uh, at least as we've been talking about it uh, fairly consistently now, is that once you get beyond the kind of individual rules that are stacked up or individual descriptions for uh, what an elder is supposed to do stacked up, and you start to look at the big themes... I don't know, what, uh, what we've talked about as being the teachings, right? Remember we did that deal about teaching being entering into a specific kind of conversation with someone where uh, Christ is put at the center and where uh, instead of lecturing the uh, old term uh, for it, elenkos was to enter into a dialogue with someone with a kind of thankfulness towards them where you'd kind of talk things out and you'd, and you'd get to the point where you saw uh, what it was that they thought, but more importantly, you could demonstrate and show and, I don't know, evidence in, in, in your way of interacting with them what it meant to be a person who is committed to and who is driven by the idea of Christ. And so, you know, we made a big deal out of the idea that, um, you know, especially Timothy, not, not too far ago, the whole idea was, uh, remember, if you uh, fulfill, uh, if, you, if you are thankful for the other person and if, uh, if the church is thankful for what God has done for us, it says what? That you... Uh, can uh, fulfill the totality of our teaching. And, you know, we've said it a number of different ways. Like one way we talked about it was saying that the point of how the church ought to be administered or how we ought to act is uh, to put the mystery of Christ at the center of everything so that we relate to the world with a lens that is different from the one 
we normally do. We've kind of uh, framed it around the idea of uh, that the demand is not that we adhere to social norms or to obligations, whether they be Roman ones or whether they be contemporary ones, but instead we're supposed to look at other folks as being members of the body of Christ. And, you know, we know the basic logic of the Christian commitment is what? That he's, even as you do unto the least of them, you do unto him. And I don't know, like, I guess the other big way we've been talking about this theme is to say, um, you know, that uh, we need to take an expansive view of the idea of grace, which is not just about redemption, although it is, which is not just about salvation, although it is, but is about seeing everything in creation in, in some sense as a gift, as something that we didn't deserve, but that has been given to us by God who loves us. And as a result, the point and the way to think about how we relate to one another in the church is to see the gift that is the other person, to receive the image of, of God in each person, to respond to it and to respond to it in love uh, because we're thankful for the world and the people that God has given us. And so I don't know, like that's, that's why I think it's a big deal that Timothy says that is the necessary and sufficient condition for doing what God calls us to do. So like over the last two weeks, we've had a much more concrete version of it, but I think it's kind of the same shtick. So we've talked about, I don't know what, old people, widows, slaves, and uh, really kind of implicitly about the social norms that were at play for the people in this congregation and, you know, the ones that are at play for us. And last week, as we talked about it, we uh, talked about basically like what, two different principles for figuring out how you're supposed to act towards other people. What were those two principles? Do you remember? The first one, the, the central one, this is one that uh, Trey turned me on to a long time ago, is honor, right? Honor culture. In an honor culture, the what question that you basically ask is, what does the law and what do the social conventions tell me that I owe someone? So as we talked about last week, you're like, you're supposed to honor your family. You're supposed to honor the paterfamilias. You're supposed to honor the great paterfamilias Caesar. You're supposed to follow the laws and norms for family obligation because like in an honor culture, the whole thing is that you have a social role to play. It's been given to you by virtue of birth in most instances. And you have to ask the question, what is it that you have to do as a result of the place that you are in the social world? What obligations does it put on you for how you treat other people and like we've been talking about for a couple of weeks, it wasn't just about, I don't know, politeness. It was like what made Rome work, you know? Like fathers needed to be able to run their households. They needed to be able to tell their slaves what to do. They all needed to be loyal to Caesar and yada, yada, yada. So I don't know, we, we, when we, as we started talking about it, we, started, we were talking about a, a comparison between two houses based on two different principles. Like Caesar's house has this principle. That principle is honor. And then you know, so like the empire is a house, but uh, I don't know, the church is a house too, right? The opening to the letter even that we returned to last week was about what? It's about like the, uh, the, the, the oikonomia, the like the way that you think about how God's house is different. And so one of the big things that Timothy, the letter uh, to Timothy is driving at is that, you know, where the principle for Caesar's house is honor and like doing what you're supposed to do under your social obligations. The principle for God's house is what? Love. Agape. And, you know, if you organize your world on agape, 
and I don't know, the other things that come with it, thankfulness and a, a recognition of God's grace, it, it tends to create some, I don't know, creates big differences with the house that's based on honor. And so last week we had this like complex set of stuff that you had to do if you were thinking about caring for widows. But like in, in the most concrete terms, what does it mean? Okay, so like honor, let's say you have, this is uh, not drawn from my own experience at all. Let's say you have a, a, a mother who is a rich widow, who, 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 who uh, uh, you know, is, uh, not, is a widow by the legal definition of the term, but um, has a ton of resources. Honor culture says, you don't ask the question of whether or not she's well off, you just help her because the culture says you're supposed to help your own mom. But the culture of agape in God's house says what? And that's, we looked at that line real closely, remember? Help those widows who are truly widows. And it has this kind of double sense. Help those widows, the people who are in the legal category or social definition, who are, and then remember the other sense for the word widow? Really lacking something, really in a tough situation of need. So like, that's the difference between honor and agape. Honor says, don't ask the question of what maximizes the good or what maximizes the kingdom or what the right thing to do is don't ask the question of whether or not the person is in need. Don't ask the question of whether or not they are socially marginal. Just do your duty in terms of honor. But the God's house, the church, which is not based on honor, but it is based on agape, does something different. It says you need to think about the ways to best demonstrate the love of God. And if that means that your mom's in good shape, don't worry about your obligation towards her in terms of honor, but instead think about the ways that the church can help the people who are most needy and most vulnerable because the point of a house that is based on agape is to look at real need, is to look at real marginalization, is to look at people who are in tough shape and to help them. So honor and agape seem to both be about like what you give to the other person, but honor and agape, at least as this letter lays it out are, are kind of different. Now, here's the funny thing. They're both unconditional, right? Like honor is, in honor culture, unconditional. I have to give that money to my rich widow mom or I have certain obligations towards my parents or I have certain obligations towards Caesar. Agape is unconditional too. But agape is not unconditional in saying, here's the duty that you have to do in a specific case. Agape is unconditional and says, and it's saying, the first and most important thing that you have to do is to ask of every relationship, what can I do to evidence love? What can I do to be the hands, the face, the feet of Christ? And so agape and honor are both unconditional, but if honor asks the question, what do I owe other people by result of my social condition? Agape says, how do I help those who are most vulnerable? How do I help those who are most in need of love? How do I demonstrate and bring about a kingdom that is a lot more like the kingdom of heaven than is the kingdom of the world. And I don't know, like that was the big point of all this discussion around widows and all this discussion around old people and for some of the discussion around slavery. is like, you know, the, the, the big point I think that Timothy's trying to get at is something like, and it's really difficult to uh, sum it up in a catchy bumper sticker, but the basic point Timothy's driving at is, hey, you know what? The honor culture isn't going to do it. We need a culture that is based on love, where the love of Christ is the organizing principle. And so I guess we could like have a revolution where we tried to overthrow the honor culture. I guess we could kind of protest against the honor culture. I guess we could like really try and, 
adhere to the honor culture and just make sure we don't create waves, but what's the real strategy Timothy's suggesting? I don't know. I think it's something like gradually replacing the honor culture, which is primarily rooted in our hearts, with a culture that is based on love and bringing in and convincing more people that the basic focus of who they are and what they ought to do is to basically love others and to love God. And I don't know, like loving others and loving God is the thing that truly transforms the world. So when we talked about in Titus, if you remember, we talked about the slavery part for a long while. And the point that I made is that I don't think these letters endorse slavery. They don't necessarily take a stand against it. But as we talked about before, I think the letters are doing something that is like radically subversive inside the church and they're doing it because they were read in public in a kind of non-controversial sneaky way the church was taking a lot of heat from the society around it for letting women lead for treating slaves like they were regular people for saying that they were not just property but they they were people and i don't know the point of these letters is to subtly but i think very clearly say something like caesar is not our god or father Honor is not the primary thing that motivates us. Our social system is kind of messed up and violent and it injures people. God is our father. God is the one who calls us to be something different. The ethic of that is love. And the goal of the church was to expand that understanding of love to transform the world. And they did it largely by pulling, as the internet would call it these days, this one weird trick about honor culture. And the one weird trick about honor culture was that it was aimed at overthrowing the kingdom of Caesar and the name of the kingdom of God. But it did it by speaking to people and reaching people in a way that was both pragmatic and and for ethical and spiritual reasons was essentially understands the main way that the world is, is, is changed is what? Is to get people to accept the language of love, to get people to accept the person of Christ and not because they were ashamed of the implications of the doctrine of love, Instead, I believe it's because they thought, and Jesus has told us, that love will change the world more powerfully than laws or wars or marching on the streets because the true transformation and the thing that brought down Rome in the end, arguably, is the idea that folks said, hey, we're not going to buy into this culture of honor. Instead, we're going to think about a world where God is our father and where the operating ethic is love. So I don't know. That's the trick. Like, Don't fight against the idea of honor. Don't support it. Make it gradually irrelevant by nudging the world to see the power and the beauty and the goodness, the kalos, as we've talked about it, of love in Christ. Now, here's the thing. If you accept that framing, which I think I've made an okay case for, you don't have to, but that's what I think it's about. If you accept that this is about honor versus agape, and you take that frame and you apply it to chapter 6, let's just say it says something a lot different than we normally think. Okay, so 6.1 says... All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Anybody else got a translation that's different than NRSV there? Maybe one. Maybe there's another one out there that's better. That all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be slandered. Alright, that's a much better translation. That, yeah, that, the... The translation that says, consider their masters worthy of full respect. Okay, now I want you to think about that verse in its context. First of all, saying slavery was a yoke was a big deal, as we talked about when we talked about at Titus. Like, 
most folks would have thought about being a slave as like being not that different from being a mother or a brother or a king or a soldier. They just kind of thought about the world was everybody has an assigned place in it and you know, none of them is particularly a yoke. They're just kind of what your lot was. But second, worthy of respect is nowhere near as good of a translation as the translation that, that, that Lucia's got there. The, worthy of respect is a confusing translation. When we talk about respect, we think about it in kind of normative terms. Like we say, every person is worthy of respect. It has these overtones of like, I don't know, dignity and, and due deference. And of course, for us, respect has a kind of public facing element. We're like, hey, don't disrespect me or certainly not to my face or whatever. But if you translate it as, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the NRSV has by saying they're worthy of respect, I don't know, it, it implies that this is a kind of a sanction for the relationship of, of slavery. But if the point is to oppose the idea of honor versus the idea of love, think about the way that the translation that Lucia read from frames it. Our word respect and the concept of honor are very different. And of course, now you won't be surprised to hear that the word in this passage is not respect, it's honor, timos. It's about the social obligations that we owe to one another in public. And that's why this stuff fits right after the stuff we saw last week about widows and about families and about fathers and about all that stuff. Because basically these chapters are saying something like, don't buck the honor culture too much Instead, replace it with a culture that is oriented towards love, and we're going to gradually nudge away from the honor culture and replace it with a love culture that is rooted in loving and knowing and understanding Jesus. So Caesar demands honor. The slave master socially demands honor, demands kind of that we act in public in ways that don't upset that relationship ago. But because these books are kind of critiques of that honor culture, I think they're saying something like, hey, let's move beyond it and make it gradually irrelevant by implanting the principles of the kingdom. And if you think about it in that light, there's a big difference between saying, as the one translation does, slave masters are worthy of respect, and another one saying something like, don't violate the norms about honor. But I don't know, to quote an infomercial line, there's more. These passages are doing exactly the thing that I talked about earlier, gradually replacing and making irrelevant the norms of honor with love. Verse 2 says, Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because, and again, that's an honor word, uh, just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Now, we can guess that, you know, there were some church settings where uh, because of the egalitarian nature of the early church, there were some fights and there were some eyebrows raised outside the church about the relationship that was displayed inside the church between slaves and their masters. But here's the thing, the kind of idea of saying that we ought to see the image of God in everyone, that every person that we have is an extension of God's grace, that our fundamental orientation towards them should not only be love, but thankfulness for them. And you start to think about what that does to all the relationships we're talking about. The relationship to Caesar, the relationship to father, the relationship to family, the relationship between masters and slaves. It really kind of fundamentally changes it. And, and, and one of the best ways of thinking about it, the, the translation I have says, uh, don't disrespect them because they are fellow believers. Lucia, you have a, what, what is the, what is the two, six two in yours? Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the grounds that they are members of the church. 
Members of the church, yeah. You know what the Greek word there is for members of the church or fellow believers? Adelphoi. Brothers or sisters, siblings, people to whom we are tied, people who have become new parts of our family. And the other kind of verse three, the idea that uh, what I have it translated here as fellow believers who are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. The word for devoted to the welfare there is guess what? Agapitoi. Those who are beloved, those who are bound together in serving the kingdom and love. And I don't know, like it's much easier to translate this passage as a passage about how great masters are and slaves that are Christian shouldn't upset the apple cart. But this passage says something that is so much bigger and more powerful than that. It says that slave and master are in a relationship in the context of Jesus Christ of of being Adelphoi, of being siblings, of being tied together as a family. And it also says that they are of beloveds of one another, that they have an obligation towards each other in agape. And I don't know, I guess if you smell what I'm cooking on the distinction between honor versus agape, this way of thinking about what it means to be in community with people eliminates the demand rooted in the honor system that says that I owe you something based on a social role and replaces it with a vision of the kingdom as mutual submission between brothers and sisters. And not to put too fine a point on it, but if the master is also bound to someone as a brother or a sister in a relationship of mutual agape, the master-slave relationship cannot inhere anymore because it's based in the honor culture. It says there's a social role that you have to fulfill or refer to based on the laws of the society or the convention, but the logic inside the church, for all intents and purposes, eliminates that relationship between master and slave by saying they're bound together in siblinghood and bound together in mutual submission around agape. And that's what I mean makes this a kind of quiet revolution because the point of this all is to say, when you think about how to act inside the church, you ought to eliminate all the things that society tells you about how you differentiate and distinguish between yourselves and between other people. And in fact, the point of these letters is to look at those principles and to say they are bankrupt and to say they are unchristian and to say that they should be and ought to be and are slowly but surely being replaced by a vision of radical love and submission to Christ and to one another in the body of Christ. And I don't know if you can then see, but at least for me, it really just hit me that This is not an apology for the institutions of slavery or of Caesar or the various ways of thinking about the father and their relationship with the sons or any of those social institutions. And it's not an apology for any of our social institutions. It's a claim that says that if Jesus has radically transformed you, your relationship with other folks ought to be defined by siblinghood, mutual inclusion in the family, and agape, radical and unconditional love that gives to them. And though it doesn't declare, hey, that means we have to overthrow Rome for some reasons that I think are probably fairly obvious given their political condition, were you to accept the logic of this vision of the world, it becomes awfully clear, clear, awfully quickly why 
in Christ Jesus there is neither man nor woman, Jew nor Gentile, master nor or free nor slave. And the point is that the vision of the Christian kingdom as it's laid out here in the book of Timothy is that when we put the mystery of Christ at the center and see thankfulness and receive in grace that which is God has given us, we have to relate to the world differently. And we have to relate to the world in radically different ways than our social practices, whether it be in Rome or whether it be in now, tell us that we ought to do. And in fact, this verse says the church is supposed to what? To teach and do these things. Verse 2 ends, to insist on them. And then there's this diagnosis that as most uh, Bibles set it up, there's like, all right, I'm on to a new thing. But it's not. It's continuous with the thing that was previous to it. The next thing that happens, as you can see in 10, is this kind of run about, it looks like it's kind of about wealth, it looks like it's kind of about people who think that they know better, it looks like it's kind of about people who don't follow the teaching of Christ, but verse 4 tells us it's about people who are what? Conceited and understand nothing if they do not align themselves with this teaching about the character of Christ, agape, and grace. And the word that it uses for conceited and for, if that's how your translation does it, is tufo. It means literally puffed up or blowing smoke. And it's a word that Greek folk would have used to talk about someone who was, I don't know, I mean, the only way I know, who loved the smell of their own stuff, who was self-interested, who thought that their viewpoint on the world was not only right, but unquestionable and superior to that of others. The thing that it's talking about here and the distinction that Timothy is, uh, that the letter to Timothy is making is to say, look, we have this truly radical view of what it means to love and live in response to the person of Jesus Christ. And it is some kind of powerful medicine when you really understand it. It really changes things when you really understand it. And people are going to resist. They're going to resist because it's not in the interest of the master to, for example, understand themselves to be in that relationship to the slave. It's not in the interest of the paterfamilias to understand themselves as also being subject to the other people. And it's not in the interest of those who have an interest in maintaining the honor culture to see the implications of what it means to live in light of Christ's grace and to live with the demand for an unconditional love towards others. And so there are people who instead of accepting this teaching, instead of accepting putting the mystery of Christ at the center, will continue on to reinforce their own self-interested and self-serving ways. So, you don't know, if I said in the ancient world, honor demands that I pay my rich mother, what am I saying? I'm saying I don't want to lose face in front of other people for bumping the social norm. And I think the thing that the letter is saying to Timothy is this, you're going to get all kinds of stuff in your congregation when you start to talk about what it really means to embrace this idea of love and how really transformative it is. And a lot of people are going to say, well, we just don't do it that way. Or what will people think of me if I do it that way? And the diagnosis here is that folks will say, well, look, you know, this is not in my interest. I don't want to lose face, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the letter says to do that is what? It is not only conceited, but it means that you understand nothing. That you haven't seen the mystery of Christ that it hasn't transformed you, that you do not see the gift that is the other person and the fact that they are made in the image of God, that you do not see the claim that is made on us 
for us to relate to not only to Christ our brother, but to one another with that same kind of adelphoi and agapitoi, with that same sense of being siblings and of being committed to each other in terms of radical and unconditional love. Because here's the thing. Most of the social practices, whether it's Rome or now, that continue to kind of repeat themselves, they're like, I don't know, the diagnosis here is they're like little idols, aren't they? And when you think about the things that define who you are and define your story and how they interact with various points in your life, all of us can see how those little idols kind of pop up for us, that the little elements of the social conventions that are beneficial for us are uh, the kinds of things that pop up for us in our conversations and our thoughts. And by the way, uh, if, if you don't trust me on that, how dare you, because I'm a tenured professor. See? See what I did there? <laughs> Took a little identity element and plugged it in and used it as a self-defense, because that's the point. Our social conventions are about affirming who we are. They were about her- affirming who the paterfamilias was. They were about affirming who Caesar was. They were about affirming who the slave master is. They are about affirming what it means to be well-recognized and to be successful and to be important. And the point is that inside the bounds of the church, and as we change the scope of the world, so more it includes more and more and more of the church, and as we make the world in the image of the church for the sake of embracing a vision of love, we are called to think differently about how we relate to God and how we relate to others by seeing and embracing and being thankful for and accepting the grace not only of our salvation but the grace of creation and the grace of the world that God has made for us and if we think about the world that way that none of it had to be here that I didn't have to be saved that I didn't have to have this world made for me that none of those things had to be but they were a gift of love and grace that I do not deserve. And that's for about everything from my salvation to the creation I live in, to the fact that I can take a breath and hang out with you all and go eat lunch with my family afterwards or whatever the thing is. All of those things individually are gifts. None of those things are things that I deserve. And because of it, each one of us is put in a position where there is neither man nor woman, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither Greek nor Hebrew, neither free nor slave, because we are all placed equally in front of a God who has given us everything. And as a result, we are called to be different and to love and to reject the idea that our own importance and the importance of our social norms is more important than doing what we're called to do, which is to follow Jesus and mold the world in his image. Those people who make everything about who they are and how they shore up their position and the system or a system of honor always show themselves. That's the point of four and five. They're going to fight. They're going to hold others with suspicion. They're going to create friction. They're going to do all that stuff because for them, the world is not populated by lots of little images of the one big and true God. For them, the world is populated with them, their idols, and everyone else. And the honor culture and even our own culture as a means of dictating our human relationships wants to tell us to promote our own good, wants to tell us to promote a world that serves us or is at least comfortable to us because we understand the bounds of it. But Timothy's point about love and Timothy's point of what it means to not only be inside the church, but to make the world more like the church is once we accept 
that vision of grace, once we accept that nothing had to be, once we accept that we don't deserve any of those gifts, not just salvation, but creation, once we accept that there is one God and one Father and that Christ is our brother and that we are our children who are inheritors of a gift, then we should treat others and act towards others and move towards others and serve others differently. That's the beautiful thing about the quiet revolution. It's changed the world more than any of its louder or more violent or visibly disruptive cousins. It's changed the world more profoundly than we could have imagined. Brought down Rome, I think, but more than that, like, I don't know, even if our friends don't, the secular friends don't like to admit it, it set the agenda for even our secular belief that every person has dignity and importance that exceeds their social position. That the idea of grace, the idea of givenness, and the idea of love are all bound together in a fundamental Christian disposition towards the world. And I think that's the point of 6 through 10. I think that's what they drive home. They do it by returning to the idea that when we think about how to act towards one another, it returns to the idea of grace and thankfulness. And it starts with this question that should matter to all of us. How do we get by in the world? How do we do it? How do, you, how, do you, how do you navigate the struggles that you face? How do you give yourself a sense of purpose that sustains you through difficulty? How do you make sense of all the stuff around you? How, how is it that uh, as the kids see these da- say these days, you kind of go out and grind to get yours? I mean, I don't know. There's different ways of thinking about it. But here's what 6 says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, the word here for great gain is porismos. And it means a way or means of finding a livelihood that is more than just happy, that is more than just profitable, but that is fulfilling, that is purposeful, that that sustains you, that, that orients you to the world in a way that can direct you towards something bigger and better. And the word for godliness here is not appearing pious. It's so much more than that. The word for godliness here is eusebios, and it means something like to live inside of and give proper credit to God. To be an inhabitant of grace. And it pairs beautifully with the word for contentment, which, man, the content doesn't quack. I love this. Autarkos, okay? Auto self, we all know that. But, and it's not arche like government, it's archaos, and it means to assist, to suffice, and to be satisfied. Gosh, that's so beautiful to me. It's not just about contentment, like having your needs fulfilled. It's not just like not having anything that you desire. But it's that there's this triple sense of, I assist other people, what I have is sufficient for me, and satisfied my goal or end or purpose is realized. And I don't know, you put them all together and you see this like beautiful concept. We can live purposeful, fulfilling, joyous lives if we make the principle of our self-contentment, not ourselves, but about living and giving in relationship to God and to others. And that is the means for real gain. Not just like real great gain, as it says in the NRSV version, but insurpassable gain. That we are given joy, that we are given peace, that we are given purpose. 
that we help and are helped by other people, that we are placed in community, that we are in relationship with others, and that we see and are thankful for the graceful gifts of God and the image of Christ in every person so that the purpose and principle and goal of our life is to do even unto the least of these so that we may do unto Christ and that the goal and purpose of our life is to take every question about how we should act and what we should be and what our purpose is and to filter it through those lenses of siblinghood, Adelphoi, and agape, belovedness, so that we can live lives that are overflowing and abundant because we serve Christ. Because you know what? Nothing else can do it. Nothing else matters. There is only grace. There is only love. There is only the manifestation of it. And everything else is a proxy. Seven says, we were brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you're, my, like my, my mom, every once in a while, and she'd get really mad with threatening us, like, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. This is not quite that, okay? I mean, it's, it's that there is nothing that you are entitled to that you brought into the world. There is nothing that you will bring out of the world of the things that you accumulate here. Everything that you have in this world is a gift of grace. Every person that you meet, every moment that you have, each one of those things is one that is given to you and not deserved. And there is so much more that is given to us and not deserved. And the point of all of it is to say, when we see the abundance of that grace, we have to, we cannot help but live in thankfulness, to rest in that grace, to live in thankfulness, and not simply to be satisfied it because it's by it because it satisfies our own needs, but it ought to turn us out and break our hearts and connect us with others in a way that transforms the world from honor to agape from whatever it is that makes us feel comfortable to a love that changes things and those last three verses tell us using the example of money but i don't think money is the only thing it's really talking about here that all the things that we might put in the place of that impulse for false gain more riches more fame more brilliance more success more acclaim, more being an object of love, whatever the thing is that you want to fill in that we can use as a proxy satisfaction. Each one of those things is not only a distraction, but only works because it is a proxy for the love of Christ, which calls us to relationship that is transformative, where we are related to and with and for and by and surrounded with others in the name of Jesus Christ and being called into the body of Christ because that is the mystery of Christ that bears within it a quiet revolution that though quiet is more effective than I imagine any other means for transforming and changing the world in and for the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Questions or talk?